really the thing I think that has set the Bay Area apart historically for technology companies has been the massive supportive network you have around you of people who are either going through the same thing as you, went through it recently, or are about to go through it. Welcome to Orbit, the HG podcast series, where we speak to leaders and innovators from across the software and tech ecosystem to discuss the key trends that change how we all do business. This episode is the first part of a conversation recorded at HG's Technology Leaders Summit in February 2022. Jason Richards, Head of Portfolio Technology, speaks to Cal Henderson, co-founder and CTO of Slack, the communication platform swiftly becoming ubiquitous across the modern business landscape. In the opening fireside chat yesterday morning between Matthew Brockman and I, we discussed the growth of HG during the past year, and in particular how it's really underpinned by the HG investment focus on fast-paced, growth-oriented, profitable software companies. And I'm sure this is what we all aspire our organisations to be. And it's something that we, as people that are responsible for designing, building, delivering software products, really have a material level of influence over. In my opening remarks, I also shared that we strongly believe that our learning is powered through sharing these experiences, whether it's across industry, whether it's from within our portfolio companies, or whether through leveraging the expertise we have within the HG Tech team. So I think we've now, in this last session, got a really fantastic opportunity to learn from industry, and specifically from Cal Henderson, CTO and co-founder at Slack. Cal was integral to the Slack journey, where the company went from pretty much zero to 27.7 billion over approximately a 10-year period. So I think that probably ticks the, the boxes of fast-paced, growth-oriented, profitable software company. So, hey, Cal, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us today. If you don't mind, perhaps we'll just take a few seconds, if you could just introduce yourself to our audience. Sure. Yeah. I'm Cal Henderson. I'm one of the co-founders and the CTO of Slack, based in, you might tell from the accent, originally uh, English, but based in San Francisco. So I'm joining you from the West Coast. What, this afternoon for you, this morning for me. Thanks for being here. So um, now, as I just described, really, it's been a pretty phenomenal journey that you've been on with Slack. And perhaps, Cal, if you don't mind, maybe you can set us off just by sort of setting the scene around, you know, an overview of what has that journey been like from, from the origins through to the point where, where you joined and became part of the Salesforce Ahana? Yeah, it's a slightly weird and long story, I think, for certainly for enterprise software and, and where we found ourselves. So we started out, uh, 20 something years ago, trying to make video games on the internet, which was not a thing that was a real thing in the early 2000s, kind of before, before the, you know, the internet and especially games as, as people know them today really existed. And we had this, this project, a game that was called Game Never Ending. It's a terrible title because it ended shortly afterwards, but that pivoted into, into a Flickr, a photo sharing website from the mid 2000s, completely different to what we were doing with games. And we found some success there. Worked on that for a little bit, sold it to Yahoo, which used to be an important software company on the internet, no longer exists. And we tried to get back and make games again after that, after a few years. And second time around, we spent, what, four years and about $16 million of our investors' money trying to make a viable business. And by the end of those four years, we had a, a uh, this web-based massively multiplayer game called Glitch that hundreds of people enjoyed every day. Unfortunately, it needed to be tens of thousands of people for it to be a viable business at the scale that we'd invested in. And so we were shutting that down, which was a, a heartbreaking experience. You know, this was not only was it the company that we built, it was kind of our passion project. And it was the thing that we'd been trying to do for at that point about 15 years. And, and we had to lay people off and 
we were winding the company down and winding the product down. And we were talking amongst the, the founders and some of the early employees of, well, we really like working together. You know, this project isn't working. What we're trying to do here isn't viable, but we love working together and we love working in the way that we've been working over the previous four years. And over the, the course of those years, working between San Francisco and California and Vancouver in Canada, which is where our game studio was, we'd been using the internet to collaborate, of course, and we'd built a series of tools, which was how we ran the business. And it started as um, adopting a product called technology called IRC or Internet Relay Chat. It's been around since the 80s has never been hugely popular, although I was super into it in the 90s, you know, kind of in the pre-web, pre-web era, just as a way to have kind of messaging and chat rooms on the internet. It's technology that's been around for a long time, never been very big. And we adopted it at the company, but immediately started building a lot of tools on top of it because it is a real tool for nerds. It's incredibly difficult to use. There's loads of things you can't do, like easily share files, see the history of what anybody said before at the time, use it on mobile. And so we built all of these tools on top of this, on top of this technology as we're building this gaming company. And it gradually took over kind of every aspect of how we ran the business. So our artists and animators who were producing game art would upload it you know, drag drag assets onto a web page and it would appear in a message in a channel or somebody signed up for the game or somebody paid us money or there was a new software build or a deploy or a server crashed or there was an AWS problem. It all flowed into this platform. And we realized we really like working this way. Um, maybe other small technology companies like us, because we were about 50 people at peak, we thought maybe maybe other other companies like us would like using a tool like that. So, you know, it was a set of tools that we had built just for ourselves, for the problem that we really understood, the problem that we had as a small organization. So we turned that into a product and that became Slack. And over the course of the four years that we're building the game, we realized we had a company-wide email list, mailing list. And really the only thing that we'd used email for was benefits enrollment, you know, so like health insurance in the, in the US. And everything had happened on this messaging platform. And it's kind of had at that time when we were kind of starting, starting Slack about eight years ago, nine years ago, it was, email was just the default in the workplace. And it had been for about, you know, coming on 30 years. And it was just the way people communicated. It's the lowest common denominator. Everybody has access to email. It's really well understood piece of technology. You know, it's universal, but it's terribly designed for the way that we work and the way that people work together. You know, email is just a digitization of the interoffice memo. It's why it has, you know, the two and the CC and what's literally called CC, uh, you know, and it's, I don't know, uh, you know, for folks who worked in an office where you had the brown envelopes with the string tie and the, like you wrote the name of the department in, it was just the digitization of that. And it's an incredibly formal way of communicating. And it turns out it's not the way that you communicate with people who you sit next to in an office in the, you know, pre-pandemic office era. It's not, and was increasingly not the way that you communicate with your friends and family as well. There had been this big shift in how people communicate, you know, using the internet over the, that prior decade. So fast forward to today, Slack say, you know, uh, or pr a little bit prior to today, we, we grew in size really substantially, we expanded internationally, we changed the product fairly substantially with a, a set of features called Slack Connect that allow you to communicate between multiple Slack instances. You know, today we have customers in more than 150 countries around the world, a lot of UK customers like Monzo, Deliveroo, HSBC. And then we went, you know, two years ago, we went into this pandemic. And while Slack wasn't built explicitly for remote work, we were a company that had and still have offices globally. It wasn't built for that, but we really felt a responsibility to, you know, try and help 
our customers and future customers navigate how they can transition to, uh, you know, to being remote and be hybrid work. And so for us, certainly, and for a lot of customers over the last couple of years, it's really Slack has become companies digital headquarters. I'm sure we'll talk about that more, more in a little bit. And then, you know, we were announced a little over a year ago, but closed about six months ago, we we're acquired by Salesforce. So now we're part of the Salesforce family of products. We are, you know, Salesforce produces a bunch of products, which are really systems of record for companies, you know, whether it's on the sales or service or marketing side systems of record. And we see Slack as not one of those, but more of a system of engagement. It's the layer at which the messy part of work happens. And if you think about, I realize this is a very long rambling answer, but if you think about, you know, the, the classic sales cycle, which Salesforce is very involved with on the sales cloud side, there's you know, the, the who you're selling to and what you're selling is something that's in your system of record. But when it comes to closing a deal, it's a lot of talking to people. It's talking to the finance team. It's talking to the deal desk. It's going back and forth with legal on getting a contract change. And it's having those rounds with the customer. And that's all the kind of glue work that is the work that goes into, into you know, making work happen. And I think that is the sweet spot that we've built the product around is the kind of tying together of all of those different strands that's how modern work happens. Uh, it's really interesting to hear sort of so the origins being this sort of organic natural evolution based upon how you're working, identifying that it's a, a tool opportunity, becoming a platform, becoming internationalized, becoming highly connected and those kind of things. And, you know, one of the things that we commonly face across our portfolio as, as the technology leaders are challenges around scalability. And, you know, how do you take something that may have you know, had its origins like you described and ultimately end up with a really robust SaaS platform. It could be mission critical and those kind of things. So, so during that journey, you know, what kind of challenges did you face or what were the kind of things you had to sort of work your way through around platform and tech choices and those kind of things? And perhaps if you could share with us a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, I, I think one of the funny things when we, when we made this pivot, you know, from, from games into uh, enterprise collaboration, if that's our space, Firstly, our, you know, our existing investors were very uh, happy for us to make this pivot because the game part wasn't working and also games were kind of opaque to them. They're like enterprise software. We understand that. And so we put together our, our kind of internal pitch deck for, for what we're doing with Slack. And we said uh, Slack was a product for teams of five to 50 people because we thought that's where this would work. And also in the fullness of time, if we do everything right, this could be a hundred million dollar business. And at the time that seemed like a, you know, to us, that was a, a huge reach. And our investors were very happy with, you know, the direction we we're taking. We were like, yeah, no, you're not going to manage to do that. But it's great that you're thinking that big. In some ways that kind of, uh, it turned out to be much larger than that. You know, today we're more than billion dollar business in, in, uh, in, in revenue and, you know, hundreds of thousands of customers. But the kind of, if you like, lack of vision about how the product would be used gave us a lot of technology challenges because the original pitch deck said teams of five to 50. And if you're, and we thought, you know, that's the kind of company size that we're familiar with because it's the size of our company. We know the product hits a sweet spot there and we know we understand the problems of those kinds of teams. I think the really obvious thing that we missed was that if you work at a large company that has 100,000 employees, you don't ever work with 100,000 people. You work with a small team around you and then occasionally with other bits of the business. And really any large company is a massively complicated overlapping Venn diagram of people that you work with, but it's never everybody, right? They're like everything 
complex is massively collaborative, like more and more knowledge work of the kind of work, you know, anybody sits in front of a computer all day is, is knowledge work is getting more collaborative, involves more people, but happens on the scale of small scale collaboration of small teams. I mean, there's uh, probably some kind of power law distribution of what can get done between when two people talk and three people and four people. And if you've been in a giant meeting where a lot of discussion happens, but nothing, nothing gets done, you know, there's a lot collaboration happens at a, at a small scale productivity happens at a small scale. And so we, we just missed that somehow, which is weird because we'd been at Yahoo when it was 15, 16,000 people. And we knew that we weren't in a 16,000 person team. That's not how large companies operate, but we totally missed that. So our premise was forged from the beginning. And with our premise, it was really easy to design from a technology point of view. It's like customers are isolated and customers don't get very large. So from a technology platform point of view, the customer is the right sharding point. It's like we will have more and more customers. And then when we run out of space, we'll put more customers into this new bucket, whatever that was like databases, messaging, application servers. And that quickly broke down. The first axis on which it broke down was we started getting really big customers. We started seeing that, you know, while our, all of our first alpha and beta customers were um, small companies like us, because they were friends of ours, people we knew, people we went to and said, you know, please, please use this product, please give it a go. It started growing into other large technology, technology companies were mostly our first customers. It started growing into larger and larger ones. And they would come to us and say, you know, we want to get 2000 people on this or 10,000 people. And then everything just started breaking. Everything about what we'd built didn't assume that that would be the case. We'd built it around building for us. And I think when you're building any kind of, especially enterprise software, it is you have a huge advantage if it's something that you're building for yourself because you understand the problem space you can really dog food the product or you know whatever whatever euphemism you like to use around using your own product to understand how it works i think that can give you a huge advantage you know in comparison to something like if you make expense reporting software how often do you actually report expenses as somebody who's working on that software as a product manager as maybe you do it you know a few times a year you're not using the full capabilities of it and especially like if you build, you know, service desk software and you're an engineer or a designer, you never use that software from the agent side and you don't know what the what the challenges are there. I think this can also like as as companies grow, this can also be a bit of a curse as well. And it was for us because we deeply understood exactly the problem that we had. And it was much harder then to make the breakout into imagining the other kinds of customers who aren't like us. And I think all things being equal, I'd rather have that advantage and then that disadvantage. But I think that was something that, that took us a while to dig out of as well, was to understand the way people were using the product that we built is not the way that we were using it. And I think that still, that still persists to today, even at the scale that we're at today, where we now have kind of complex internal metrics about customer sophistication, which is not about the sophistication of the customer, but about, you know, how they use our product, what features they adopt, the balance, you know, within Slack of like public to private messaging, platform integration, and we Slack using Slack remain the most sophisticated customer of Slack. And I think that can be, you know, that is both a, a blessing and a curse. Just on the tech side for a second, was there any sort of wholesale changes you had to make? Because in my experience, one of the things I've found is Sometimes people take too long to realize we've got to change this, right? And they keep trying and trying and making it work and the problem just doesn't go away. So, you know, were, were there any situations where there were big, brave decisions that you guys had to make to say, look, this, this, you know, this whole tech stack's wrong or, you know, we've got to shift to a different kind of platform or architecture. Was there some big decisions like that along the way? 
I'd say on the whole, most of our technology changes, and there have been, you know, many big kind of replatformings were incremental, mostly. And I think, you know, the right, the right way to think about this is that it is really good for to kind of design for about 10x scale. You know, five to 10x from where you are now is what you want to be thinking about as you continue to design technology. Just because so many of your assumptions are going to change beyond that scale that if you if you build for, you know, 100x where you are now, you will almost certainly not get there without changing what it is you need to do. You know, that your assumptions about how that scale will change are going to be wrong. That was certainly the case for us if we had decided from the very beginning to build for the massive scale that we have today. But as you say, it's a sweet spot between like just building for next week versus the kind of architecture astronaut of before we even have any customers on this product, we're going to build it for a billion people. And that might be a problem that you actually need to solve if you're Google and you're launching a new product, but more or less no organizations need need to solve for that. However, there have been some pretty big kind of, you know, technology breaks internally. One was, so if you're familiar with the product, people use Slack on mobile and on desktop and on, on desktop, our core kind of client, we reached a point five years ago now where we realized that the the complexity of what we'd built was just not from like a customer usage point of view but just from the way we built the code as the team had grown from one person working on it to a hundred people working on it to 200 people it was just so impenetrably complicated that we couldn't make any changes to it they would take way too long everything would break so we're like all right we're going to have a massive effort involving 50 people to completely rewrite this every line every line of code from scratch it took about two years and, you know, throughout that process, we had to figure out how can we, how can we make that into something that delivers incremental value? So we don't want to just be like nothing at all delivered to customers for two years and then a big bang, because that will almost certainly take longer than two years and be a disaster. But also we know that it will be a bit more expensive if we figure out a way in which we can do it incrementally. So we figured out a way, a mechanism via which we ended up writing, rewriting 100% of the lines of code, which is millions of lines of code, but that delivered a little bit of performance, a little bit more feature, you know, kind of month on month to our customers and ended us up in a, in a better position. And I think any large scale technology product, technology platform, you're either in a situation where you're on kind of like a long, slow decline and everything is gradually aging out and uh, becoming less and less maintainable, or you're in a constant overlapping set of migrations, whatever that means, new technology, different orientation to how you build it, different ways of building, and you're a constant series of overlapping migrations. And I think that as technology companies and products become mature, become more complex, it is a figuring out the right level of investment between that kind of health investment and maintainability versus new product innovation and new product features is difficult. You want to keep that balance right such that you're able to continue to be agile on the front end with functionality, as it were, because the otherwise someone new, someone small is going to come along who has absolutely no technical or product debt. They're going to build something, something new and, you know, and come and uh, come and eat away, eat away your customer share. And the ability for us to, to be able to move quickly and respond to changes as they come up is, is going to be really predicated on how quickly we can prototype and build things on top of the technology platform that we have. Because as a, you know, now as an incumbent in the space, we have a lot of advantages because we have a big customer base and we have a lot of kind of capabilities, especially for enterprise customers. But we need to be able to build and iterate quickly on that and know that we'll be able to five years from now as well. And, and you mentioned sort of the people side of it, sort of going from one to 100 to 200 people developing. How, I mean, how did that scale? What were the sort of challenges there around how, how you bring the people along on this sort of rapid journey of you know, significant growth and, and 
you know, sort of going international, much bigger scale, much bigger customers. You know, how, how did the team deal with that? What, what were the main sort of challenges there? When we started, we were, when we started at Slack, we're eight people. Today, we're about 3,000. So it's a pretty significant growth over the last eight, nine years. And I think the the hardest phase of that, well, there, there's kind of a, a few interesting phases of that that, that, are, that have been difficult. I think the, probably the biggest challenge was when we tipped over the kind of 30 or 40 people mark into as a single product, single service company, when we went from everybody knows what everybody's doing every week and what everybody's role in the company is tipped over to that point of there's multiple things happening in parallel. Nobody can know, you know, nobody knows everything that's happening, or at least most people don't know everything that's happening. And you don't, you know, you don't necessarily work with everybody else on a daily or weekly basis. You know, the point at which we had to go from having an engineering team into an engineering organization with multiple teams, in my case, for, for engineering. And that, it seems kind of, it seems silly that that's the harder, you know, scale point to deal with compared to, you know, like going from 500 to 1,000. But it's really that point at which every way that you work together as a very small team has to be thrown away and you have to start adding in kind of process and a lot more investment in tooling. I think the failure modes that I've seen in a lot of organizations as they kind of hit that scale point is bringing in way too much process too early. And you especially get this if you are a small growing company and you start bringing in people who have just left working for a giant company. They're like, well, you know, at Facebook, at Google, we had all of these tools and all of these processes. And it's like, that is, that's necessary for a 10,000 person organization or a hundred thousand person organization. That's not necessary for 20 people. At the same time, I think as you do build out processes and figure out what works for you at the scale that you're at right now, it's another failure mode is not throwing those away as they no longer make sense. You know, either putting in process structure, a way of working that is way too far down the line or putting something in place and then overtaking it with your scale and not getting rid of it. So I think the, for whatever reason, a lot of organizations, a lot of people, I count myself in this bucket early in the company, kind of loathe to throw away process that they've built because that's the identity of how we work and how we operate and what we are as an organization, what we are as a company. I think that one of the ways to avoid falling into that kind of trap is to think about what are the, what are your values as a company, and it sounds super corny, but like, how, what is it that you want to be unique about how you work and how you operate, not just at the scale you're at today, but what would you still want to be true if you were twice as big, if you're five times as big as you have 10 times as big, whether that's number of employees, number of customers, complexity of technology, whatever that is, and make sure that that's the thing that you're keeping and that you don't get too tied to the, your particular implementation details, because those things are going to need to change over time. Even if when something works really well for the scale that you're at today, maybe it won't tomorrow. And there were certainly phases early on in the company on the engineering organization where we were doubling or tripling each year. And so almost everything about how we operated need to be thrown out constantly. So we were designing at that point, designing how we work together for the next three to six months, as opposed to what's going to set us in good stead for the next year or two years, which was just far too far out for us to be planning. Another portion of that time, that era of the company was that I spent, you know, at times up to 30, 40, 50% of all of my time on recruiting, which as a technology leader at the company, that seems like a weird use of time, right? Like I'd be, prior to that, spent time designing, implementing technology, guiding the, the technical vision. But there was a, a period of time in which I just had to stop doing that because the most important thing I could be doing was interviewing 100 candidates a week. 
and making sure that we were building the right management team, hiring out the right key engineers or, you know, just hiring out engineers full stop. Because if you get behind on that, it becomes impossible to dig out of the hiring hole, but also then you don't have the people to, to deal with the technology problems. And so we needed to be just ahead of the curve there. Growing any organization that much, like 100% growth, just means that everything is going to feel completely different and everything's going to be broken for a while about how you operate. And that's probably the most hectic time in the history of the company, I think, when the most things were changing. It's also super exciting. And you might notice I like to do kind of long rambling answers and go on a bunch of topics. But what's come to mind now is like I'm here in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. And historically, I think the thing that has really set the Bay Area apart, this has changed changed a bit because of COVID and I think it will change significantly again in the future is sure there's access to talent here because there's a bunch of you know technical universities around and there's access to capital because this is where a lot of VCs are based but really the thing I think that has set the Bay Area apart historically for technology companies has been the massive supportive network you have around you of people who are either going through the same thing as you went through it recently or are about to go through it and because there's this strong network of support around you, while every company is different and the journey and how they approach things and the problems that they have are unique, there are people who have been through similar things. And I think one of the, especially as organizations grow, those kind of resources of understanding, you know, the, the pros and cons of what you could be doing, the different choices that you have are very rarely going to come internally from within a company. If you're going through that growth, it can be quite isolating. But having that network of people around you who are, you know, like who have who have done it, who are encouraging, who are helpful and supportive and having that net, having that support net is huge. And I think that's one of historically that's been one of the big advantages of the Bay Area is finding finding other people who have who have done it at a greater scale or went faster. The success stories, but also the failure stories of understanding what did people do that really didn't work out and in what ways didn't it work out and what are the things you can do to avoid that. And so I think that tradition of learning, sharing failures, learning from failures and celebrating them. Because when a company fails at doing something, when something goes really badly, it's, it should be a learning point, you know, and it's a learning that you can share with people to avoid, to avoid them going through exactly the same thing. And I think I'm not claiming that we're like the Bay Area in any, in any way, shape or form. But, you know, I think the PE world and certainly the HD portfolio is perhaps a microcosm where we do have 40 companies that are all trying to do very similar things you know, can come across similar challenges. Someone may have been there already. So that's why we do absolutely try and leverage what we call the power of the portfolio and sharing amongst ourselves. And, you know, as I said, it's not the same scale, but it's definitely a support mechanism that we think is really important. And people absolutely leverage that across the portfolio. Yeah, I think that's hugely important, especially as in, don't mean this to sound, you know, diminutive, but especially in smaller regions of the world where the tech industry is smaller, where it's not like everybody you know has a startup, then finding that network can be really difficult. And I think that, you know, as things are changing now with more with more and more companies becoming distributed and not really being centered around geography quite so much, although I think that's going to take a decade to change really substantially, having that network is hugely important. Whether it's people who have that experience and, and can give you those useful insights, or just people to commiserate with because they're going through the same thing, you know, and feeling like you're not not so alone in it because it, it can just be isolating. To hear more of this conversation, check out part two in this, the third series of the Orbit podcast. There's this huge channel of feedback, whether it's positive, negative, indifferent, that I think any organization building a product for end users is crazy if they're not tapping that stream of feedback. 
you don't just have to convince somebody to give Slack a try, you have to convince somebody to convince their co-workers to give Slack a try. It's not valuable using it by yourself. There's no like solo mode. Thanks for listening to Orbit, the HG podcast. If you'd like to find out more about HG and our work building businesses that change how we all do business, subscribe to our newsletter at hgcapital.com forward slash newsletters. Thank you.